All right, well, where have we been in the living Word of God? But if there's somewhere else that you, something just stood out to you, just blessed you, that you want to give away tonight, and the little time that we have, we, our reading was up to Matthew chapter 4 today, that's where we are, and if there's anything you want to share, something that just blessed you, spoke to you, encouraged you, strengthened you, that's how we help one another. By, by sharing with one another the neat things God's doing and speaking to our lives right now. So up to Matthew chapter number 4. Rachel. Rachel. With weeping, uh, Rachel weeping for the children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's in uh, 2. Uh, in reference to Herod. Right. Yes. What Herod had done. Yes, and, yes. Uh, because... Mm-hmm. And his that the woman that bore Judah was Leah, mm-hmm. not Rachel. And I was wondering why it was Rachel weeping. And so I asked God, and I said, "Tell me, mm-hmm. I want to know." Well, they were in Bethlehem, and that was the tribe of Benjamin, mm-hmm. and that Benjamin was Rachel's child. Mm-hmm. Make, make sense to you the location yeah. of where they were when they slaughtered those two years and younger, right. which also went back to Rachel was the one for, for years couldn't conceive. Right. She was without children, and her sister was bearing these children. Then the concubines had children, and she was kind of a, a weeping for, for children. And so that that particular picture there goes to the idea of also Galatians is going to talk about it from the perspective of Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. The, the heavenly Jerusalem, which looks like it's less in number compared to the earthly Jerusalem, and Galatians talks about that in comparison to law and grace and that which God does in grace based on the promise and we see that, that prophetic picture, all the prophecies that were fulfilled in the birth of Jesus and how God used even decrees and he used ungodly men to fulfill those prophetic words. He used Caesar Augustus to get Jesus where he needed to be when he was born. Now, Jesus was in a room, wasn't he? He had been in a womb for how long? Nine months. A decree went. Joseph takes Mary, brings her to Bethlehem, and she gives birth to fulfill a prophetic word. But you see, Jesus used Caesar Augustus to get them to where they were supposed to be. And he'll do, he does that same thing today. He'll use, he'll use people that, that don't serve him, are not looking to him, that are not even conscious of him, doesn't search him, doesn't belong to him, but they are in authority and they have power and they can do certain things that other people can't do and he's able to use them even in what they do, which is contrary to what he says to do, to get his people where he wants them to be. Just ultimately saying that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond anything that we could imagine and that he is going to fulfill 
his promises to his people. And we can trust him. Doesn't matter what the government looks like. Doesn't matter the laws. Doesn't matter the tax laws. It doesn't matter what they do. They will give an account for everything they do. But we, on the other hand, can rest assured that he is working out his will. He's working out his plan. He's going to have me where he wants me to be. And I can just trust him in that. Amen. There's been a many a people who, who for whatever reason, God had a plan for them to be somewhere else and do something else, whether it was on the job or within a, a church or, or somewhere on another mission field, and they would have not gone had not there had been something else take place that they had no other choice but to leave to get to where they were going because they, they wouldn't have gone had not something tragic or something harsh or a bad relationship or something like that break out. They'd have not to, they would have never got to where they were at unless something else transpired. Amen. He's able to take care of that. Sure. You know, missionaries may stay on the mission, a particular mission field longer than what God intended, and something gets them out of there. And he puts them right where he wants them to be. We can, we can just trust him in everything that he does. Amen. We can trust him. So, yes, that is a, that's a great find. And that's what we were praying for. God, show us things that we just didn't see the last time I read this particular story, this context, and, and what he's speaking to. Help me with something and let me see things afresh and anew. As we talked about Sunday, how, how God borrowed uh, the womb, yes. borrowed the stepfather, borrowed the barn that he was in, uh, borrowed uh, the cross that really belonged to us, but he took our place on that cross as God's sacrifice and as our substitute, and then he he borrowed a tomb, and he didn't stay there long, did he? He was in and out in three days. Hey, he, he can do it, and he did it, and thankful for it. Amen? I like in chapter number 3, in verse number 13, when Jesus was baptized, you know, John, who tried to prevent it, he understood. He had a, he had a glimpse to, to uh, an extent. We understand he didn't see everything, but he saw enough. And remember, that's what faith is. Faith sees what God sees. Not everything he sees, but enough of what he sees for us to be right with him, and walking in harmony with him. And John recognized, no different than how Simeon recognized, no different than how Anna recognized. Remember we talked about that Sunday morning. What, what did the shepherds? The shepherds saw something. They heard something. The wise men, the kings, they saw something. But Simeon and Anna, they recognized something. They recognized Jesus. Well, John recognized him. And when he recognized him, he said that he, he shouldn't be baptizing Jesus. It should be the other way around. He needed a baptism. He needed to be baptized by him. And Jesus said this in verse 15. And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us, for you and me, John, to fulfill all righteousness to fulfill all righteousness he's saying john this is the father's will 
This was God's design from the very beginning that you baptized me. This is a fulfillment of the righteousness of God. If it flipped the way around, it wouldn't be the righteousness of God. But this is the way God's designed it. And then John followed his word, what he just said. And when he baptized him, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now there's other times that God did that too when he says, this is my beloved son, hear him, listen to what he has to say. But what a, what a great picture here uh, that in his, he felt unworthy to fulfill this duty that, that had been given to him. Here comes Jesus to be baptized, but he said, no, th this is the righteousness of God, this act of faith, obedience to fulfill. And every time I read that, it just, it blesses me. That's a good question. Good, great question. In all actuality, verse 16, when it says, and when he, that is, he had been baptized, and Jesus came immediately up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he, I know in some translations that's capitalized, but in others it's not. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. I think that is a reference to what John saw. What John saw, I don't think everybody else saw. I think this is something that God allowed supernaturally for John to see and for John to hear. I don't think everybody else heard it. I think John saw this happen, and, and I think that he heard this that was spoken over him. And that's the neat, another thing, neat thing is that we find that, for an example, with the Apostle Paul. Remember when God blinded him on the road, yeah. and, and the, those around him didn't hear? If I'm not mistaken, we'd have to go and look, but there were some elements about the situation that only Paul heard. But didn't know. He, God spoke to him. Right. You know, but, but he can do that. No different than when a donkey spoke to Balaam. Right. You know, if he communicate out of a donkey, he can also speak over a whole group of people standing out there and only one person hear it. Or the rock. You know how many times that's happened in a church service? Amen. Where God spoke to one. Yes. And that one person heard the call of the gospel to respond in faith, obedience, to G and, and the others in there didn't hear a single thing. You know, they may have heard what the preacher proclaimed, but they didn't really hear a revelation from God. They didn't hear a word that done something in them. Uh, they walked out no different than they came in, or they walked out a little harder than they came in. They didn't come walk out any softer. They didn't walk out any more humble, uh, because you can't ever be exposed to the word and not be changed. It either hardens you or, or, or it humbles you, it softens you. Either way it goes, but there's times where people hear things from the Lord out of a particular word and message that other people didn't, didn't get. And I believe that's what happened right there. John, out of affirmation to him, he saw the, the dove alight upon him and he heard the voice. 
And even later on, we're going to find where John's going to question, was he the one? And, and, and that just goes back to the fact that when Jesus didn't go visit him, when he was in, in prison, Scripture says Jesus was on mission doing what he'd been called to do, and John was fulfilling his mission, and that was part of what was going to happen to him. And he began to question, and his own disciples that stuck with John the Baptist, he said, go tell John this is what you've seen. And he describes the supernatural work of what Jesus was coming to do. And, and I think it had something to do with the fact that, that John questioned, well, if, if I am who I am and he is who he is, I think he would have paid a little more attention to me, possibly, and what I've sacrificed. And got me out of jail. Too. Something. And, and therefore he began to, because he was having somewhat of a pity party, you know, when you have pity parties and your attention's on yourself, you neglect everything else you hear. And, and you, you forget what you've learned in the past or what you've seen and what you heard. And I think that's something to do with it. He, he, how many of y'all can relate when you have a pity party, everything goes out the wind at the moment? You, you, you get taken captive by the enemy to do his will because pity parties are, are from the devil is what it, what it is. And no different when he tried to tempt Peter. When Peter tried to show mercy to Jesus and said, God forbid, you don't have to go through that. What did he tell him, Peter? He said, Satan, get thee behind me. And he says, you are more mindful of what? Savor the things of man and not the things of God. And, and that's what we, what we see, I believe, with that there. And I'm sure there's more, a lot more to it. But I think to your question, Greg, I, I personally... From what we gather from the rest of the testimony and what was proclaimed, I, I think it was really more for John's sake than anybody else. No different than when Jesus took the disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration right. and Peter comes and said, let us build a, for all, for all, for three of them. And the Father spoke to them, didn't he? Yeah. Simply said, hear him. Now, who else heard that? I just think those that was up there that day. And the same goes with what he does with us today. He, he can speak to us. said in one of the later Gospels that that was one of the signs that, that God had said, when you see this happen, you yes. know that's the one. You know, You'll know. And, and that's what it was. It was a sign of affirmation to him. And, and there's other people. You take Apollos for an example. Remember when Apollos was preaching and the scripture says that he come from the west, he come out of Egypt and he was proclaiming the, the, the word of God and he proclaimed it with boldness and with great confidence and boy he knew exactly what he was communicating. He preached with great authority, with great accuracy but his accuracy was only limited. It stopped at the baptism of John. He didn't know anymore. So when Aquila and Priscilla heard him proclaiming this at Corinth, the scripture says they took him privately, pulled him aside, and explained to him all that John had proclaimed and then the life that Jesus lived and the death that he died and the resurrection and now the gospel's being proclaimed throughout the world that Jesus, the message that John proclaimed in preparing the way, the way had come. And the scripture says that he received their message, went straightway, 
and preached the gospel, and he couldn't be refuted. They, nobody could stand against him when he preached the word of God. He shut the mouths of everybody and said he went from place to place and with, with, uh, was a great tool for the gospel. But he was accurate in what he had. He just had minimum information. And, and here we have it here is that we see the difference of the power and transformation that takes place beyond John's work in Christ. And to God be the glory. Amen. Yet some translations in the other Gospels says that Jesus was driven. He was drove to the, to the wilderness by the Spirit. This, I, this particular one says that he was led up by the Spirit. And he was led up by the Spirit with purpose. What was the purpose of being led by the Spirit into the wilderness? To be tempted of the devil. So, why? that he could relate to, to our temptations, to us. And, and therefore, how does he fight against the devil? He fights against the devil the way we can fight against the devil. He could annihilate. He could have done anything he wanted to do. But the, the thing that Jesus did in this warfare for 40 days while he fasted and prayed and was isolated in the wilderness with uh, the tempter himself, he waged a war with him in a way that we are capable of waging a war with him. And that's what he was teaching us. This could have been totally avoided by God if, if that was God's choice to do. He could have totally destroyed the enemy and cast him into the everlasting lake of fire if he wanted to. But you know what? We was going to have to deal with the devil one day. And how are we going to deal with the devil? What did Jesus do? He slapped him with the word, didn't he? He hit him with the word because that's really the only thing we can do. It's to, you can't fight him any other way. We've got to be armed with the full armor. But the only, the only offensive weapon we have is the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit is what? The word of God. And that's what Jesus used. Notice what he says. Verse 2 of chapter 4. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry, just like you and I would be hungry, and his natural man, and when the tempter came to him, and that's when the tempter likes to come, when you're, when you're weak and feeble, when you're, when you're hungry, when there's a need, and he said, if you are the Son of God, Command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He caught him in a weakness. He attempted to provoke him. He attempted to get to him through pride. If. You are the Son of God. He tried to question, make him question who he was. He attempted to play on the fact, well, if you're really the Son of God, that would mean that you have some kind of authority and power, and because you have authority and power, you can do something with those stones, 
and you have a weakness too. You're hungry. You'd love to eat that right there. You must not be the son of God or you had already done something about this. Well, he didn't fight him on a dialogue with what he was questioning him on. He just said, it is written. It is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You know, we've talked about this quite a bit throughout through the years on these particular passages of Scripture. That takes us back to Deuteronomy. It takes us back to when God gave His people manna. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God tells His people there was a reason that He fed them manna. The manna was to keep them humble as they was in the, in the wilderness. And when they were humble, they would be dependent. And when they were dependent, they were going to be dependent on the Lord Himself. And one of the ways that He was going to keep them dependent and humble was not the fact that the manna was what's going to sustain them in life because it wasn't the manna that sustained them. They learned pretty quick that the manna itself is not what's going to sustain us because he gave them instructions about the manna. Remember, how, how, what was the instructions on the collection of this manna? They were to collect it what? Day to day. How much were they to collect day to day? Just enough for a person or what was in your household. That's all you were to collect. What happened if they collected more than that? What they did collect wouldn't profit them at all because it would rot, right? Now, he did something different, though, on the sixth day. What were they to do on the sixth day? They can collect more on the sixth day than they did any other day, and it wouldn't rot. So what God was teaching them was this. What God says about something is more important than what the something is. What God says about a thing is more important than the thing itself. Yes. Really, what God says about life is more important than life. Come on. There's a lot of people who are going to live life but don't know what God said about life. And at the end of their life, their lives will have no value whatsoever, will be cut off and all lost because... They thought that their life was more important than what God said about life. And what God says about a thing is always, will always be more important than the thing itself. It's more important than life. It's more important than your next breath. It's more important than the next food, the next bite that you take of food. It's more important than the water we drink. It's more important than your marriage. It's more important than your relationships. It's more important than anything in life. And that's what he was teaching them in the wilderness. My instructions for you, my blessings over you, my way and word over you is more important than anything you have in life. Because what I say about something is more important than the something, whatever the something is. And you see, he, that's what he was reminding this, this enemy and himself. That having bread is not near as, as important as what God said about bread. Right. Eating is not as important as what God said about eating. Living is not as important as what God said about living. Amen. And when we understand that, when it comes to loving things and liking things and living this life, when we find out what God has said about it, that is where life is found, where truth is found, 
and he changes how we view life, how we view things, and how we view everything when we, when we come to God for his perspective. So I, I, I like to highlight that. I bring that out to myself. I write it down. So I, every time I look at it, I'm reminded of it, is that in the kingdom of God, what God says about something for me is more important than the thing that I'm dealing with right now. Because I believe he's got an answer for me. Amen? Amen. No different than the next thing that we see. What happened next? The enemy, he's ruthless. Verse 5 says, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you, here he is again, they've always liked starting out with that, if you are. You sure God said that? It's what he did with Adam and Eve in the, in the garden. You sure about that? Did God really say, You shall die? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall Give his angels charge over you, and their hands, they shall bear you up for fear you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, he hit him with the word again, amen. He hit him with the word. He didn't run. He hit him with, he resisted him with the word. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. What does it mean to tempt? test to prove you shall not test the Lord how do you how how would then would you test God you test God by going out on the limbs on something that God hadn't already spoke about now you test him testing God going out on the limb without hearing from the Lord first see people will tell you that in our society you just need to go out on a limb, take a step of faith and go out on a limb. Well, you don't want to go out on no limb God ain't led you on, amen? Because a just man lives by faith. And you see, when we live by faith, we really believe that what God says about something is more important than the thing itself because that's what we're clinging to, what he said about it, and that's what we're holding on to. So here he is. He said, go ahead and jump off. And, and, and see if his angels will, well, see, God didn't lead him to this point. God wasn't going to lead him to jump off. And if he took matters in his own hands without hearing from his father, that's testing God. Amen. Testing God is like slapping God in the face and waiting to see how he responds about it. And to slap God in the face is to operate without him. That's taking life in your own hands. Doing it your way and not his way. Amen. And that's, that's how we test God. When we do it our way and not his way, we simply, it's like slapping God in the face and just waiting for a response. Well, is he going to overlook it? Or how is he going to treat this thing? Because I'm going my way, doing my thing. That's a test. But when you, when you are trusting him, following his lead, you're putting your life in his hands, not your own hands. Amen. And when you put your life in his hands, you can't please God no more than, than that in any way. Because that's what he says. It's impossible to please God apart from what? Apart from faith. And faith is putting yourself in God's hands. Amen. Saying, God, you know what's best. I trust you. 
There may be a test for me, but I'm not testing you when I trust God. And in the kingdom of God, there is no limb worth climbing on if God ain't on it with me. He's not, that's simply saying, don't go do something because somebody has provoked you, you wanted to do it. Do it because God led you to do it. Do it because he's leading you to do it. Do it because he's guided you to do it. He's given you an answer, a solution already. Hey, the world we live in, they can go out on a limb all the time. But they're not my example, amen? That's not who I'm following. You see, you read enough self-help books and, and uh, self-help gurus and you read all that stuff and then try to apply it in the kingdom of God, you're going to hang yourself out there and you're going to do exactly what the enemy was attempting the Jesus to do. Do it on your own. Take life in your own hands. No, God says, trust me. I am your shepherd and you shall not want. I will lead you to green pastures and still water. I'll prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. I'll lead you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. That's what a shepherd does. A shepherd doesn't say, you go out there on your own and I'll catch you when you fall. That's not how God works, amen. That's testing him. That's taking matters in your own hands and then expecting God to come through for you when you fall. He says, no, I'll let you eat the fruit of your own fancy. I'll let you fall. You trust me and you'll never fall. And if you do stumble, I'm going to pick you up. And I'll pick you up seven times. And I'll meet every need you had. You keep walking. Because it's inevitable. We're going to stumble, amen, as humans. But that's why the scripture says the steps of a righteous or a good man, they are what? Ordered or established or appointed by who? Anything else is testing him. Doing no different than what the enemy attempted to do. So we got to recognize that. See, that's part of the warfare that we're fighting. It's the enemy who invites us to go way out there without God's leadership. And, and pride comes up in us, no different than it would have been with Jesus, and says, hey, you deserve to go out on that limb. You deserve to have better. You deserve to be doing better. You deserve to, to have a bigger place. You deserve to have better cars. You deserve all that stuff that the world tells you you ought to have. And the whole time we're operating without God's leadership. Instead of decreasing, we're increasing. As John said, I must what? Decrease that he may. These things go against what we've been taught all our life by a world system. But I'm glad that the world system is not the one he's assigned to guide me. Amen? Amen. Scripture says the world system that doesn't factor God in operates out of the lust of their mind and their flesh for which the whole world is under that course. And that's where that mystery, remember last week we talked about this last Wednesday night about the mystery of lawlessness. A world we live in doesn't realize they under the, the mystery of lawlessness, that lawlessness is at work in them. They don't know that. We can only look at it with the light of the revelation of God because I didn't know I was under the enemy's sway or the world's sway. I thought I was just doing what was best for me and my family and the right thing to do. I had no idea I was operating like the rest of the world, doing what the world does. 
who is manipulated by an enemy who doesn't ever factor God into the equations of life. They don't go to the Lord for his answer. It's all about taking risk. It's all about going out on the limb for yourself. Well, you see, you don't have to take a risk when your shepherd is leading you to the pastures. And he's the one who's correcting you. And he's the one who's got a rod of protection over your life. And he's the one guiding you with his staff. And when you get away, he pulls you back in. That's where you want to, that's where I want to live. Amen. Amen. And when I, when I get out of that way, I'm just grateful for his grace repentance that he allows me to confess my wrong and come back in alignment with him and keep listening to the voice of my shepherd. Because as a sheep, the only defensive measure I have is my shepherd's voice. Jesus is saying here, I'm, the only thing I have is my shepherd's voice. And what he said is more important than bread. It's more important than me being full of pride. The, the, the next thing, watch what he says. Verse 8, again, here he is, he's relentless. The devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship, you shall give place, you shall fear the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Exactly. But, but see, that's what he, that, that's, we, we see this, this idea of the lust of the eyes. The we see the, the lust of the flesh, and we see the pride of life at work. The nature of the flesh. Just thankfully, Jesus was, was, didn't fall and sin in that and was, was without sin. But see, we're prone. We got a flesh that, that can't be redeemed. And it still is drawn to these things. It still wants to pull away. That's why we need the renewing of our mind so that we can be transformed to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will. And why we put on the whole armor of God. And why we use the word of God. And Jesus is helping us. He could have battled him in any other type of way and done away with it. But he didn't. Why? Because we can't do it. We can't destroy the enemy. The man was teaching man how to, how to live. live. How, to fight how to live, how to fight, and it applied over not just on how to fight the devil itself, but this is how we live life. We live life because uh, what he says about life is more important to us than the life we have. Our marriage, what he says about it is more important than our marriage itself. Our relationships, our mission, our anything, what he's given us is more important than anything else in life. And now we can, we don't want to test him by doing it this life, putting it in our own hands. We want to follow his leadership. And we want to do it by giving place and priority to the Lord from day to day. And that's going to help us deal with the pride of life, it's going to help us to deal with the lust of the flesh, and it's going to help us deal with the lust of the eyes. My eye says, I, I, I see it, I want it, my flesh is going to tell me that I need it, and pride is going to tell me I deserve it. 
And I can't listen to neither three. I've got to listen to Jesus. Amen. And ask him to help me. Well, I, I'm not going to be able to do that unless I have the whole armor on. And understand that it is a battle. It is a war. Turn to Deuteronomy 6 real quick before we go. And he also showed us that's how the devil operates. He catches us in the flesh. Yeah, and he's going to catch you when you're, when you're feeble, when you're weak, when you're needy. That's why Paul told the church at Thessalonica, we just left out of there, he says, look, warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, and support the weak. We all got people around us who are weak and giving in to the temptations and we need to help hold them back. That's why we're, we're, we're connected together. We're to help our brothers. There's going to be others who are small-minded and giving in to the test of life. Not that they're giving in the temptations, but the test, the problems of life seem to overwhelm them. We need to come alongside them and show them what God's done and how, he could help, how He's helped us through those things and how He's helped others and then we come across those who are troubled and troubled makers and we, we warn them to get back in line, to get back in submission with the Lord before they get trapped into something they can't get out of. But notice what Deuteronomy 6, this is where these things come from. In verse number 10, let's just start there. I won't keep you too long and we'll, we'll head on back home. I'm sure y'all got something to eat at the house. Y'all still eating on leftovers? We are too. We got some gumbo over there. I'm ready to go get. Verse 10 says, So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant when you have eaten and are full. That's just a great picture of grace. I mean, we get so much in Christ that we didn't earn, we didn't work for, He gives it to us. He pours out on us in the fruit of the Holy Spirit and, and our life of trust in Him. Verse 12 then beware for fear you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Here's what he quoted to the enemy. You shall fear. The New Testament translates that worship. When you fear something, you give place to it. Whatever you worship, you give place to it. You shall fear the Lord your God and you shall serve him. Whatever you serve, you give priority to and you shall take oaths in his name. That is, uh, who you give your promises to. So he's telling us three things. Who we give place to, who we give priority to, who we give our promises to. And that all belongs to God. It doesn't belong to ourselves. It doesn't belong to anybody else. Who we give place to, who we give priority to, who we give promises to. When we give place to something, we yield to it. When we give priority something we're submitted to it when we give promises to it that has our integrity and that's what he requires of us and that's how we are going to resist the enemy steadfast in the faith by giving place to the lord giving our priorities over to him and our promises are held in integrity 
by faith in him. And that's how we, how we work through this. And that's what he was teaching them. Look, I've done these things so that I would keep you humble. You go over to chapter 8, and the first few verses of chapter 8 is where he started off with the enemy, and he simply told him that, look, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. I take that as a principle, is that what God says about a thing is more important than the thing itself. Why? Because the manna was no good unless they did it God's way. When they chose to do it their way, the manna wasn't going to help them. And that's what he was teaching them. Do it my way because my, my, uh, my way is the best way and it's the best way for you. It's going to help you. And I'm going to teach you by the basic necessity of eating and surviving in this wilderness because if you don't do it my way, you won't be able to survive. But when you do it my way, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to lead you and guide you. Just follow my way. And, man, that helps me today. Amen. That, hey, what this word, I may, I may be look like a fool. People may question me all the time. But whatever God says about it is more important than whatever the it is in life. Amen? We can take him at his word. Father, we thank you tonight, bless you, thank you for this opportunity we've had to again to gather in your name, to search your word, to pray, and to ask for your help, and that you would continually shepherd our lives, to shepherd us as we walk in this life with one another, as we grow in your grace and your knowledge. Uh, that you would shepherd our marriages and our relationships and the people that we work with, the people that we live among, the people that we serve with. We're praying that the things you communicate over us, we'll see that they are what is most important to us. And that in self will translate over to how we love and treat and lead other people. So I'm just asking you tonight to help us. We need you. We're thankful for your grace and your kindness and your mercy. And now we just, as you launch us out on the fields tonight to do your work, that we'd bring glory to your name. Pick us up when we fall. You already promised you would. And we ask you from day to day to order our steps. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Love y'all. Y'all have a good night.